and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. Listeners, the wonderful thing about hosting this podcast after the last several years has been the opportunity to witness the emergence of some brilliant Australian writers. And my next guest is a case in point. I first interviewed Canadian-born Ashley Collagian Blunt in 2019 when her debut novel, My Name is Revenge, was published. Since, Ashley has published a memoir, How to Be Australian, along with other writing which has appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald, Overland, The Griffith Review of Books and Kill Your Darlings, just to name a few. Ashley also teaches creative writing and co-hosts the popular podcast, James and Ashley Stay at Home, a podcast about writing, creativity and health. This year, Ashley can add another feather to her already crowded cap with the publication of her much-anticipated crime thriller novel, Dark Mode. A compulsive, highly relevant and riveting book, Dark Mode will have you guessing until the very end. A chilling insight into the dangers we face online every day Dark Mode shines a spotlight on the darkest and most disturbing aspects of modern society. An absolute must read for all crime fiction fans, and it gives me such joy to welcome Ashley back to the podcast today. Hi, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me back, Claudine. It is such a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. So to say that this book both scared and impressed me would be an understatement. Such a clever and timely book. And I wanted to say congratulations, Ashley. How are you feeling about its release? Very excited. It's just started, you know, appearing on Instagram in the hands of, of readers, and that's just such a joy. I really, um, yeah, I've been waiting for it to come out. You know, we signed the contract a year ago as a publisher. So it's, it's amazing that it's finally here. It feels actually, it feels like that time has passed very, very slowly for me. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine that it has. Clearly, Ashley, there was a great deal of research that went into this book, but I wondered if you could share the first seeds of inspiration. I mean, it's a book that does a deep dive into the online world and the dangers that lurk there, but it's so different from My Name is Revenge and also How to Be Australian. So what compelled you to write it? Oh, wow, that's such an interesting question because this book has some layers to, to you know, in terms of answering that question. So I think one of those was people who know me and my work will know that I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome in 2017. And it was, it was quite, it wasn't as severe as it has could have been as it is for other people, but it was severe enough that it kept me mostly bed bound and house bound for the first couple of years. And I filled a lot of that time with true crime podcasts and every single episode of Law and Order Special Victims Unit and crime fiction audiobooks and crime documentaries on Netflix. So basically any crime narrative took me out of the world I was in. I couldn't, I couldn't listen to like writing podcasts because they just broke my heart because I couldn't, you know, be out in the world doing things and doing my writing and engaging. So yeah, it was crime, it was crime fiction that like really pulled me through the worst of the illness and and true crime. So then I had literally thousands of hours of like true crime cases compounded in my head. And I've always been a crime fiction fan, like going back to Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. And then, you know, I started reading John Gershom when he was kind of at the height of his popularity when I was a teenager. And so I just, I think I'd always been kind of afraid to write a, 
like a crime thriller because I think it's like oh you need to know so much you need to know about how the police work and you need to know about like the justice system and like you just you know and I just didn't feel prepared to try it but then after I spent all this time listening to all these true crime cases I thought you know actually I think I maybe know enough to give it a go and so I went in very much with this um idea of you're going to give this a try you know it was the pandemic I'm like whatever if it doesn't work you'll try something else you go back to nonfiction. like it's fine so I think that spirit of experimentation helped because I wasn't putting any pressure on this book and I had a lot of fun writing it which might also again be I wrote most of it during the pandemic so there was no other fun anywhere <laughs> but part of the inspiration specifically for the story was there was one particular twist that I thought of and I was like you know I've not seen that in crime fiction before and I wonder if I could pull that off. So I kind of built the story out from the twist. And the other thing is the dark web plot. And the dark web plot came from one day I lost my driver's license a block from my house. It fell out of my pocket. And I, you know, thought that's annoying. I'm going to have to replace that. And then the next day, Claudine, I went on my the back end of my author website and it was flooded with traffic from Russia and China and Ukraine and I was just like what is going on here because that is not normal like nobody in Russia is just normally googling me and so what I realized doing some research is that someone had obviously taken my physical driver's license and instead of putting it in my mailbox they put those details on the dark web and we know you know from the metabank hack from the Optus hack that that people are selling our private information on the dark web and so someone had taken my information and put it on the dark web, but the details on my driver's license alone aren't, you know, there's something, but they aren't complete. So I believe what was happening was that hackers who work in, in syndicates, so they work as a group, were trying to fill in other information about me, like my phone number, my email address, um, and thinking, oh, well, she may have, you know, put some of that stuff on her website, which is very much why I don't put any of that stuff on my website. But that got me really interested in the dark web. And I started doing a lot of dark web research. So that's a long answer to your question. But there was just, there's a, and there's other things as well. Like we can talk about the Black Dahlia murder. There's so much in this book that just all the pieces sort of came together at separate times. I want to get onto the Black Dahlia murders for sure a little bit later. Obviously, very few people have read this book at this point in time. So with that in mind, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the story. Absolutely. So Dark Mode is a psychological thriller that explores the intersection of violence and misogyny on online and in real life and it tells the story of a Sydney garden center owner whose discovery of a murdered woman near her home makes her suspect that her secret past is catching up with her. Regan is our protagonist and she's clearly you know as you said she's a garden center owner she lives on her own clearly a trauma survivor and she had a terrible thing happen to her when she was young and sadly didn't get the support she needed to help her deal with that trauma. But after being so careful and so guarded, when she finally does let her guard down, it has very real consequences for her, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So she, so part of the plot early in the story, she, she meets someone and she's really excited because, you know, she's been, she has been so guarded for so long and it's been many, many years since anything happened that would make her think that she needs to continue being so cautious. You know, when the, when the book opens, she has very, very minimal web presence. She has almost no online presence except for a, a website for her garden center. And then that's it. And people can email her through that website. 
And that's her only online presence. That, that is the how cautious she is. Now, this book is set in 2017. And part of why I said it in 2017 was I kind of felt like that was around the last time that it would be reasonable for someone to have that little web presence and be operating a business. That was the year, it's crazy to say this now, that was the year that my husband upgraded from a, you know, like a, a simple brick cell phone to it to a smartphone. He hadn't had one till then. And now it just seems like there was a time we didn't have smartphones, like what? <laughs> so she's, she's very, very cautious, but she meets someone and this person, and you know, she's, and she's wary at first, of, as she is of everyone. But she, this person wants to help her and at a time when she really needs some help because she has such a minimal web presence, her, her business, she's got a small little local business and it's, it's really struggling. And he says to her, you know, I think if you had some more uh, social media for your business that you could probably, you know, turn more of a profit or turn any profit at all. And so she, because she needs that help, she decides to trust him. Given that Regan was such a careful and damaged person in in many ways, I wondered, Ashley, how did you get inside Regan's head? That's a great question, and that was a real that was a real challenge. As that took that took many, many, many drafts. I think probably her character was the biggest challenge for me in terms of writing this book. I think because she was so guarded and so wary. She came off originally in early drafts as unlikable. You know, that word got thrown out a lot. So I, I have a writer's group where we exchange chapters once a month and we give written and verbal feedback on those chapters. And yeah, that, so much of the issue in the early chapter was how do I make readers want to go on this, on this journey with her when she's, when she's so cautious of people and so afraid I think having the writers group like I don't know if this book ever would have gotten anywhere without them like they by being willing to read the same chapters over and over as I kept as I kept developing them she became a person who uh, I think yeah you're like oh I feel for this person like I I want to be with her and and I, I have some insight into why she's behaving the way she does. Because one of the very, very first things is chapter one, you know, opens with her finding this body. She goes for a run in her neighborhood. She lives in Sydney's inner west. She goes for a morning run very early. And she's in a laneway and she finds this body of this this woman who's very clearly been murdered. Uh, there's no question about about that. So I'd watched 431 episodes of Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And there's a real trope. And it's not just in, in Law and Order, but it's. It's, you see it so many times episodes open with like random people in New York City find a body and and then it jump cuts to the police are there on scene and so what we put together is oh these people called the police and I really wanted to subvert that trope I really wanted to open with her finding this body and knowing she should call the police and not calling them and feeling like I, this is, I'm not willing to do this. This is something I'm not willing to do. I'll have to give them my name. I'll have to give them my address and, and like my real birthday. And I'm just not going to do that. And she, and even though she feels for this woman, she, she takes off. So that's, that's how wary she is. And my early readers were like, you know, what is she doing? <laughs> it's yeah. like, okay, like you got to jump on board with her pretty fast. I'm really thankful for their feedback because I got the the, the novel to a point where the first agent I sent it to within three weeks was like, we've got to meet. So clearly I got, I got, I got it working, which I, yeah, again, my writer's group was, was my saving grace there. Yeah. My next question was going to be, did you find her difficult to write? And I can, you know, mm. obviously, yeah, you did. But I guess the introduction of her 
best friend in many ways, Min, also added a bit of light to her character. Instantly, everybody loved Min. Everybody loved Min. They're like, she's great. (laughs) All right, good. Well, that's easy. Yeah, if Min could love her, then we can love her. That's good to know. And one of the things I really wanted to do again in this novel is is explore female friendship and some of the the challenges around female friendship. So Min Min Lee, uh, she's um, Korean Australian, and she and uh, Reagan meet in Korea. They both this is years before the story starts. They've both gone there to teach English, and that's where they meet and they live in this little village together, where they're two of the only people who speak fluent English, and they both happen to be from Sydney. And they become very, very good friends. And of course, this is based on my time teaching English in Korea. And you know those situations where you have this really, really intense friendship because you have this proximity and you have this context. And then you leave that context and all of a sudden the friendship is never going to be the same because you're in a different place and you've got different commitments and you're you're not living right next door to each other. And you know, you still love this person, but everything's changed. Their relationship does change a little bit, but they're still good friends. Yes, they're still very, very close. They're still very close. But whereas, whereas you know, Reagan has committed herself to her business and has, has stayed very, very cautious and doesn't date anyone, Min has met this guy and fallen in love and she's got two adorable children and she's had this super successful career as a, as a crime uh, journalist and, and then writing a true crime book. So she, they're in very different places in their life. And Reagan can't help but be a bit jealous of, you know, when she goes to Min's home, there's all this love in the house and, you know, the little kids. And you could, like, Reagan really, really would love to have a family. And, and that's just not the situation she's in currently. Now, Ashley, your exploration of the dark web in this novel is nothing short of terrifying. It's, <laughs> it's the platform of choice for pedophiles and extremists. And as your novel demonstrates, militant misogynists, a place where disturbing ideologies are promulgated and illegal activity promoted. How on earth? did you research this and how much of what you explored in this novel was based on real life incidents? Oh, that is a great question. So the attitudes of, like you mentioned, the militant misogynists, everything that they say in terms of their their attitude toward women. So they use this term in the book. They refer to women as FOID, F-O-I-D. It's a term that's short for female humanoid, which is what they refer to women as. And uh, it's basically a way of dehumanizing women. Which is really interesting because my, you know, my first book being about about genocide. One of the one of the phases of genocide, one of the things that allows genocide to happen, is this dehumanization of a group. So I wasn't looking for connections between the two books, but it was really, really alarming to find this connection. Um, so yeah, these men uh, who are part of this group, they use the term void. And that's taken from real groups. I think one of the key differences, actually, um, one of the things I fictionalized is that I, you know, I put this group on the dark web to make them creepier and scarier. But really, I based this on groups that are all using the surface web. Like they don't need to be on the dark web. They can, they can, you know, have a have a closed website, you know, password access website on the clear web, and they can operate freely. And so, you know, these groups are based on incels, involuntary celibates. MGTOW, men going their own way, pickup artists, who these are all groups that um, identify themselves as um, seeing women as inferior and actively promoting, you know, male supremacy effectively. It's so horrifying to read that in print, the attitudes expressed and the way they view women. It is 
utterly shocking. And you touched on this a little bit earlier, but to the extent that I can say that any of this is fascinating, i.e. these kinds of attitudes and the fact that they promulgate these attitudes on, on the internet, I was intrigued by that, this kind of terminology, words, as you said, like FOIDs, like incels and PUAs. And I particularly, and this isn't something that's used possibly on the dark web, but I'd never heard of the term swatting before. So can you explain oh, that a little bit? Yeah, so swatting is, it's a phenomenon that happens largely in the US. And the reason it's called swatting is that it comes from the term uh, SWAT team. Mm. And what it is, is when you call emergency services and you provoke them to respond to a person's home or business uh, when there is actually nothing happening there. You're provoking a response in order to terrify and disrupt uh, whatever's happening at that home or business. So for example, if I called up emergency services and told them that you had a bomb at your house and you were threatening to kill your family, what I would be trying to do is get a huge SWAT response that would, you know, bust into your house and completely terrify you. In America, you know, we have, they have these over-militarized police services. And so their instant response, of course, if someone calls and says, you know, so-and-so's got a gun, so-and-so's threatening their family, or someone, there's a bomb, they send out the SWAT team and they send out a huge, like, military police response. And people have died. Like, they've ended up killing people because, you know, they respond and people don't know what's going on and they walk out the front door, like, what is happening? And they get, they get shot and killed. And in Australia, now there have been swatting incidents in Australia. People have been arrested for them. Generally, though, thankfully, our police response is not that extreme on, you know, on an average day. And I even I talked to a cop about this and he's like, yeah, if we got a call like that. Normally we just, you know, send out a couple officers to like assess the situation first. And I was like, that's the country I want to live in, not the country I want to write about. So, <laughs> so I have, I have use more of the American type of response but yes swatting comes from that that SWAT uh, term SWAT team. Yeah I understand there's been some high profile cases of swatting in the US too. Yeah Tom Cruise, Rihanna yeah a whole bunch it's, it's a thing to do it to celebrities and it's one of these things where again like these these um people online generally speaking men will compete to see like what's the most high profile successful swatting response they can provoke so they do it to businesses they do it to celebrities and you know they're having a laugh about like what they're getting away with and there's a great uh documentary on netflix can't remember the name of it it's about this guy who was like the most prolific swatter in the u.s and just uh how the police ended up catching him and yeah he basically you could pay him you could go online on twitter and you could pay him to swat someone you knew wow that's yeah. next level messed up. Really, that is. Yeah, yeah. It's a very, it's a very particular criminal business model. With the rate of violence against women statistics, uh, what they are in this country, this kind of toxic masculine underworld and the attitudes towards women expressed in these forums are really quite terrifying. And it begs the question, how do we deal with this? And why has it got to this? It feels like there's a war being waged against women. That is an excellent question. And I, I think it goes back to partly why I wrote the book is because I think the first step is just more of us being aware of it and more of us being aware that it's, it is not just happening in dark corners on the internet that don't matter. Those groups, you know, they, they're unfortunately very organized. And they have uh, connections. So there's like 
there's these, they're really, really toxic forms where you would look at what they're saying and be like, well, this is so outlandish. Like, obviously, like any rational person would reject this. But then they interface with these like sort of bizarre not-for-profit organizations that present a much more legitimate front, you know, and they make up all these statistics about how, you know, for example, men will never, almost never get custody of their children in a divorce because the courts are all, are all stacked against men. Like men will never get a fair deal in the courts and they make up these fake statistics. But then because they present a legitimate front, they get interviewed by the news media and the news media will present their cases often without fact-checking them. And then that discourse gets into our political system. So there's there's a relationship happening between these between these groups. And there's enough buffer between them that if we're not paying attention, we don't notice how these these toxic ideas and extremely misogynist ideas are filtering up into our political system. And so the first step is more of us being aware of that and more of us being aware of what's happening. And I think then looking at, you know, it's easy to blame the men involved and be like, why are you such a terrible person? But I think I think the bigger question is like, what is going on in our society that people are feeling so alienated that they're turning to this kind of attitude as a way of as a way of coping with their own lives? So I think there's there's big societal questions that we need to address. And the first thing is is learning more about what's going on. And that's partly why I wanted to write this into dark mode. When I said that these groups are organized, it really meant they're very organized. And one of the things that they are doing is they're targeting teenage boys and they're targeting them on places like YouTube and Instagram and TikTok. And they are, are actually, it's almost like a, like a cult. They're looking to like entice them into their uh, way of thinking and way of their, their mindset when they're young and impressionable and probably a bit vulnerable as well. And one of the ways they'll start doing that is with humor. And so they'll have these sort of, you know, misogynistic, uh, sexist jokes. It's sort of presented as like, oh, haha, it's all silly. It doesn't matter. But it's sort of a gateway to this thinking. So I think, you know, for parents, especially parents of teenage boys, being aware of this and, and, and proactively talking to them about it is probably one of the, the most important things. One of the other fascinating threads of this book, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, is the Black Dahlia murders. I never know whether it's Dahlia or Dahlia, but anyway, whichever way you say it. <laughs> I think it's a British US thing. I, I say Dahlia, but... So, Ashley, tell me why this case piqued your interest. Okay, so like I said, I had spent a number of years listening to many, many, many true crime cases and kind of like know all the all the big profile cases, I think. And then I, then someone on one of these podcasts made a comment about the Black Dahlia being the most, the Black Dahlia murder being the most infamous unsolved murder in the US. And I was just like, well, I've never heard of that. Mm. And so the Black Dahlia has been a case that has piqued a lot of interest for 70 something years now. Her name was Elizabeth Short and she was murdered in Los Angeles in 1947. So this is a long time ago. And you know, there's still movies and TV shows being made. This uh, TV miniseries, I Am the Night with Chris Pine, came out only a few years ago, was centered all around this case. And part of the theory of why this case has uh, sustained so much public interest is that that nickname is just like so memorable. Like you hear it once and you're just like, oh, what's that about? Elizabeth Short was a woman. She had a very, very pale face and this head of dark, wildly curly hair like just gorgeously curly hair and so she she sort of looked like a flower also uh, she was known for wearing a flower behind her ear 
And there's debate about whether she earned the, the nickname. People called her that in life, but almost named her that after her death. So when I heard this you know, most infamous unsolved case, I was like, okay, I've got to find out what this is about. And the case is just so interesting, partly because of that sustained history, but also because, I won't get too graphic, but she was discovered in, a, in a, an empty lot in a residential neighborhood in Los Angeles uh, in the morning. She'd clearly been posed. She was cut in half at the waist, and her torso was sort of offset from her legs. They were about a meter apart, and her arms were splayed up in the air. She was completely naked. And there were all kinds of specifically made wounds all over her body. I know in, in pop culture, you know, you often see posed corpses, but in real life, it is very, very rare for a murderer to pose a corpse. It's like less than 1% of the time it happens in cases. So this was like, someone was very intentionally trying to get attention. And so you can't help but be like, what is going on here? Like, what was going on in this person's mind and who and why? you know, why did this happen? Who did this? And and so it is officially unsolved still to this day. There's some very interesting theories. Lots of people have devoted, you know, years and years of their lives to solving this case and written many, many books in dark mode. I go into the theory that I think is the most compelling. And I, and I talk about why I think that's the most compelling. Actually, you know, it's actually Min is talking about why she thinks it's the most compelling. She's sort of speaking for me in the book. There's one particularly really fascinating theory that was put forward by an uh, L.A. police detective who, after he retired, found out his father had been a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. And and he sort of was like, oh, well, you know, I've got time in retirement. I'll just sort of, this is an interesting case. I'll look into this. And with the sort of intention that he was going to prove that his father was, of course, innocent. And actually, his, his uh, investigation led him to conclude the opposite. And he's now written three books about all the evidence that he's collected that he believes supports uh, his theory that his father was the murderer. Absolutely fascinating. And I love the way you wove this story and this unsolved murder into this case and how it resonated with the events of this novel. Stunning. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Do you think that by writing this book that you have an altered perspective of how to keep yourself safe online? And would you change anything about your online activities? You know, if I wasn't an author, if I didn't need to have a public profile, I, pr I wouldn't have social media, I think, just because I do like, I like, I like social media. I'm not, I, I genuinely like it. I like interacting with people there. I've made great friends there. But I do also feel like, you know, you, you put a lot of yourself out on social media, you put a lot of your life out on social media. And, and that makes, you know, that makes me a bit nervous. I think it's probably safer not to have it. So I just try to be a as safe as possible and yes I part of writing this book has just been being aware of like all the ways that we are not safe online and part of that is through no fault of our own like our systems are digitized now so like with the Optus hack and the Metabank hack like we don't have control over how our information is saved by corporations and actually we need better laws you know we need we need much stricter laws about that kind of security we can't we can't look after that as individuals there are things that we can do, such as change our passwords. And it's been it's been interesting because since writing this book and, and starting to promote it, I've been talking to friends about, you know, their sort of online security. And I was talking to one guy and, you know, he's late 30s, early 40s. And he was telling me about how his, his Spotify premium account, they, he can see it, like in his account, 
details, there are people listening to it in Russia and Argentina. And one of them was listening to it while he was trying to listen to it. And they kept trying to change the song he was listening to, to the rap version of Baby Shark, which is like, just brilliant. I said, oh, like, have you changed the password? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I got to do that. Then he tells me he only has one password. And I was like, Dude, that, that one password is clearly on the dark web. You're telling me that you use the same password for Spotify as you do for your bank account? And he was like, yeah, I should change it. <laughs> you should change it right now. Like, get up from dinner. Go to your computer. Like, what are you doing? Our passwords are definitely on the dark web. And once they're there, they're there forever, which is why we need to regularly change them, which is why we need a password manager. And the friends I was with said, well, I don't use a password manager because I feel like that's the first thing that's going to be hacked. And I can understand that attitude, but you're still safer if you have a password manager with a really complex password. You need to memorize at least one really complex password. It should actually be a passphrase. It should be at least 16 characters. Set that up. Uh, now, my password manager did get hacked, and they sent out a very detailed email explaining the hack, and they said, so they've, they've sort of hacked our encrypted data. As long as your password was sufficiently long enough and complex enough, it will take them at least a thousand years with current technology to break into your passwords. So you don't like, don't panic. You don't have to go change all your passwords. We recommend obviously changing your pass, your login password now. They said, if you had a simple password though, go change all your passwords. Mm. But I just regularly make it a practice now to change my passwords pretty often. I am... Um, because with the password manager, that makes it super easy. What I do is when I go to a website with a password, I'll just click forgot password, automatically resets it. Then my password manager automatically puts a new password in, automatically saves it for me. It's super complex. So that's one of that's one of the things that I do to to you know try and keep myself as safe as possible. Yeah, fantastic. Some really terrific advice in there. I was just writing down some tips. Sixteen characters. Sixteen, 16 characters. characters. And I personally I I don't, I don't know, you know, I, I have three passwords that I memorized, my, my password manager, my bank account, and my email, which is my Google, my Google password. So those are the three that I'm like, okay, I'm not saving them anywhere. They're 16 characters. They're complex. They're, they've got symbols and capital letters and everything. And I just use phrases. I use phrases from my life that I, that I say often. Ashley, you've come a long way in your writing journey since we first chatted in 2019. And despite suffering bouts of chronic fatigue, as you mentioned earlier, you've managed an incredible output of creative work, both in the fiction and nonfiction space. So I wanted to ask you, what and what's your secret? And what tips would you offer to writers out there who are looking to get published? I have so many tips. And writers, if you're looking to get published, you can go to my website. I've got like, just tons of tons of tips there. I teach writing and I love I think I like I really love writing. I love the craft of writing and I get really excited about writing. But one of my key key tips is have a good writers group. So going back to what I said before about how like I feel like you know, I could have spent years going in circles with this manuscript if I didn't have a good writers group. And when I say a good writers group, what I mean is one where you're giving informed critique, like informed feedback. So that means the people in the group need to be actively engaged in improving their craft and studying craft so like I have um, I actually have two writers groups where we exchange feedback now and one of them when I set it up I said everybody needs to know narrative structure like we need to be able to talk in an informed way about narrative structure so if you're coming into the group and you don't know it the condition of you coming into the group is I'm going to teach it to you and it's just been amazing seeing 
people come into the group and just seeing their writing improve just vastly, like with each month with each submission. So I think that camaraderie and support is is really key. And then of course the question is where do you get a good writers group? Well, you know, it takes it can take some time to form one, but if you're if you're a member of your state writers organization, your state writing center, like Writing New South Wales, Writers Vic, for example, they organize writers groups and you can go to events, network, find other writers to set up your own writing group, you know, and and if you try a couple and they don't work for you, that's that's okay. Just keep going. It took me a few years to find a good to find a good one. Terrific advice. Thank you so much for sharing. Now, I know I'm speaking to you slightly ahead of publication of Dark Mode in Australia, and no doubt you have some already heady months ahead on the publicity trail. But can I ask you what's next on your publication horizon? Ah, I am on a two-book contract, which is really exciting. So my next book is coming out in early 2025, which is a weird number to say, but it's, yeah, it's coming apparently. I'm in the midst of in the midst of that book and I can tell you that it is not a sequel to Dark Mode, but it's very much in the same vein. It's gonna be the same atmosphere, same themes. And it is set though in Winnipeg, Canada, which is the city, if anybody's read How to Be Australian, you'll know that's the city that I fled from because the winters were minus 40 degrees Celsius. And so I want to set a book in a minus 40 degrees Celsius winter. So I've been doing a lot of research about Winnipeg. So the main character in this book is a Winnipeg City tour guide. And so she knows everything about the city. And it's such a, it's like a city of less than a million people. It's such a strange little city. And I'll just tell you one quick, like, fact about Winnipeg that just blew my mind. So in February 1942, Winnipeg staged a full-scale Nazi invasion of itself. (laughs) Why? (laughs) I love your face. That was amazing. So basically... They had uh, they had three thousand troops engage in a mock battle north of the city. The Nazi uniforms were all shipped up from Hollywood. Uh, the Nazis, quote unquote, won the battle. They came into the city. They, they arrested the premier and the mayor, and they sent them to concentration camps. They then renamed the city. They renamed the main street after Hitler. They had a big parade up the main street. They republished the city paper in German, and it was all Nazi propaganda. They went into restaurants, and they kicked out the patrons. They went onto buses, and they demanded ID papers. They had a book burning. Uh, And all of this was to raise money for war bonds. They wanted to... So the citizens had been forewarned that this was happening. This was very, very well orchestrated. And just the level of commitment of all these different organizations working together, I think it's just extraordinary. They raised... $65 $65 million in 1942 money in war bonds uh, for for the effort. And it was because they wanted to show, you know, Canada was so far removed from the war. Went, you know, didn't have like social media like we have today. So we didn't ha- they didn't have that sort of like what is actually going on and what is this really like for people. So they wanted to show like the citizens like this is what's happening to people in Europe right now. And interestingly, it happened on the same day that the Japanese bombed Darwin. So just interesting coincidence there between Canada and Australia on that day. Fantastic. Well, it's not fantastic, but I mean, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit bizarre. But it's a strange city. This is my point. Is it's a strange city, and I'm excited to show people how strange it is. Thing is, how you brought it up. Where did the money come from? Where did the sixty-five million dollars come from? Oh, that, that's like citizens donate. Like, so, so not donated. They bought war bonds. This was all a publicity effort to like get people to buy war bonds, and it oh, worked. See. Like, people were like, "Yes, Throwing we are money. gonna." Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, well, there you go. Well, I'm very intrigued now. I guess I'm going to have to wait till 2025 to read that. Start counting down. 
So if listeners wanted to connect with you or learn more about you and your books, how can they do that? I have a website, ashleycollegeandblunt.com. And of course, I am on social media. So you can find me. Instagram is the best. I'm on Instagram. Uh, You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. And I would love to hear from you. I love hearing from readers. I love chatting about books. Ashley, I'm so impressed with Dark Mode. I have no doubt it will be flying off the bookshelves in months ahead. Congratulations once again. And thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all the work you do supporting Australian authors. Claudine, you're a marvel. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetonellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.